Greetings, dysfunctionals. Once again, it is Dr. Ernesto coming straight at you with the Reality Dysfunction 411. Today, we have a special treat, a group discussion with experts in the Chicano experience. Our discussion today will focus on the recent mass shootings and how they targeted the Mexicano-Chicano community. Chopping it up today are Reiner Delgado, president of the Communication Workers of America Local 4108, located in Saginaw, Michigan. Dr. Nora Salas, a Chicano historian. Dr. Teofilo Reyes out of Philadelphia, PA, who is the research director for Restaurant Opportunity Centers United. Rock United is a key organizational player in the fight for 15. Magda Sanchez, currently a San Antonio, Texas community activist with 19 years of experience working in the tech industry, disrupting the khaki pants, blue scenes shirt. All right, let's get down to it. Seems to be open season on Mexicanos, Chicanos, indigenous people in general. Dr. Salas, as the historian, I want to throw the first question to you. Are current events an anomaly in the history of this country? No, I don't think that they're anomalous or out of range of the United States at all. I mean, first of all, the U.S. was founded as a settler colonial society on the idea that European people had a right to control the land through violence and that other people, especially Native people, did not have a right to that land. After the U.S. conquered northern Mexico during the 1840s, Anglo settlers used a variety of means, including violence, to dispossess Mexicans and Native Americans. I mean, they used extreme violence. Yes. Yeah, so, like, the first woman executed in California on July 5th, 1851, a woman known as Josefa of Downeyville, was a Mexican woman who was killed following a show trial for the offense of stabbing an Anglo miner who was trying to break into her house in the middle of the night. This kind of killing was really common in California during the late 19th century, where preeminent Chicano historian Rudy Acuna says that about a third of lynching victims were Mexican um, in California in the late 19th century, and even though Mexicans were only about 15% of the population at that time. In the 20th century, the state-sanctioned killing of Mexicans moved to Texas, the early 20th century, it spiked in the 1910s due to a lot of different things, but especially the increased value of Tejano land in South Texas and the desire for, by Anglo settlers to have that land and to control labor on that land and fear of ideals of the Mexican Revolution that were coming into Texas at that time, you know, desire to control that and, and sort of put, keep that down. You know, you don't want the people that you want to be your wage-working, farm-working class going around, you know, getting excited by speeches of people saying, la tierra es de quien la trabaja. You know, the land is of who works it. How is that going to work out for you? It's not going to work out. And there were a lot of killings of Mexicans at this time. Probably the most well-known one that's gotten a little bit of press lately was the Porvenir Massacre in 1918, when the Texas Rangers and local ranchers killed about 15 Texas Mexican men and, and boys while supposedly looking for bandits from Mexico. And after this event, the town of Porvenir was basically abandoned for many years. And later, an investigation found that the original accuser, the Anglo rancher who had talked up this threat, um, was trying to cover up some of his own thefts from his neighbors. So I think that this type of killing of Mexicans for supposedly not belonging in the U.S. has deep roots, and it's going to take quite a bit to dislodge it. 
So everybody that's on this call was born in the in the late 60s or the early early 70s. And you know, I'm just kind of wondering from your guys' perspective, you know, how you've noticed things change within the course of your lifetime. I mean, obviously Dr. Salas has laid down a pretty compelling argument that, you know, the things that are going on aren't anomalous, that they're a part of the history of this nation. But I guess for myself, it really seemed for a moment like maybe things were getting better. And then just seemed like it kind of fell apart. And so I'm just wondering where you guys are at with that in terms of thinking about your own experience as uh, Chicanos, Chicanas, Chicanx in the United States. I think one thing that really resonates for me in hearing Dr. Nora Salas speak is that, you know, my own family's ranch land was stolen from us by the Texas Rangers. At the time, if a landowner were shot and killed, all you had to do is just take possession of the land. So what they did is they went in to our family's ranch, killed my Papa Grande in front of the women and the children, cold blood. And our lands and our wealth and all of the cattle was taken. And that's how it ended. You know, they were, my family were wealthy landowners at the time, but literally it took one shot. All the girls were armed, sadly. The girls were taught to shoot as well. And in their little sewing basket, the story is told that they had their rifles underneath in case, you know, there was bloodshed. And at this case, the shooting happened outside before, you know, before anyone could get to my Papa Grande. But, you know, so I think about this and I think about how our own wealth was taken from us. And I think about growing up in Michigan. I was born and raised in Michigan, but my family has been in Texas for 10 generations. My parents went to Michigan for grad school and then they never left. They stayed for 30 years. But at the end of the day, you know, when I look at my experience growing up, I grew up in a very racist environment. At the time when I grew up, I was born in 1970 and we lived, because my parents were educators, I saw things were racist, but it was not polite to be outwardly publicly racist. And what I've seen in my experience is racism is now normalized. I was reading an article today in the San Antonio Express that there are now double the hate groups in Texas since 2014. So that's a very short time frame. In five years, the number of hate groups has risen. And when you look at a society that is San Antonio is 60% Mexican. And so if you look at that, like think about those dynamics alone and yet this resurgence of all of these racists, it's now okay. I think the, I think the leadership in this country is encouraging hatred. Hatred is now normalized and now it is now socially acceptable to be outwardly racist and it breaks my heart. I mean, it kills me that my own intern this summer was afraid to drive home to her university in North Carolina as a brown woman, as a Latina. She said, I am so afraid to drive home because she said, I don't think I'm going to make it alive. And that, that just kills me. This is, you know, a 21 year old woman who's afraid for her life to go home. That's real. Anyone else want to jump in there? So we've, you know, looked at this issue. I mean, as, as a group, many of us have, we've known each other for a very long time and we've looked at white supremacy, white settler, settler colonialism, what the impact has been on the Mexican, Chicano nation, et cetera, for, you know, for time. And so the, the idea that things were getting better were based on the fact that we were seeing a, traject- a trajectory of, I think, as I understand it, of greater political power based on just numerical strength. And, you know, you saw these massive mobilizations of immigrants who were pushing this idea of being undocumented and unafraid and pushing for, you know, their, their status, demanding, demanding their rights. I think 
we're seeing the natural uh, sort of re reaction to that, which is that what has, has been the dominant ideology that has essentially formed the foundation of how America and white America sees itself has been so challenged that now they're, you know, they're responding in a way that is adopting much of the language that we have used to advance our cause in order to maintain the position. And so you have this very out white identitarianism, white uh, nationalism, uh, this formation of an identity which is much more ideological as opposed to the default, right? Uh, you see this creation of a more aggressive white ethnic class that sees itself under attack. And that's the reaction. And what we're seeing, which I think we need to fit, we have, we assume we're going to talk about, is how we will respond to the fact that this group is going to take more and more extreme measures that are, as it already has, both detaining people, putting them in concentration camps, many of them based on being Mexican. And we can expect this to, to, to sort of continue and advance and accelerate. And what can we do to respond and prevent that, you know, outside of, you know, out of a civil war, which seems like it's something that is very much a possibility in this, uh, in the time that we're living in. You know, I, I don't know that that answers your question. I'm, I, you, you said, you said, Todd, uh, Agnesa, you said uh, that you felt like things were getting better. And so I'd like to sort of talk about what that looked like a little bit, you know, if possible, uh, to try to understand whether in fact things were getting better or whether that was just sort of a, us being lulled into complacency. I mean, I feel like I, I, as I was growing up, you know, and, and of course, I mean, I was, you know, young, but I think the idea that there were things like affirmative action, there were programs that were allowing people greater access to things. I mean, I was a upward bound student when um, I was in high school. You know, I, I kind of saw all these things happening. And then not to sound all crazy or whatever, I got a little bit of a kick out of Barack Obama getting elected president. I realize a lot of things about Barack Obama, but I mean, still, I was like, holy crap, this is black guy that got elected president. I mean, so, you know, for myself, it did seem like things were getting better. I mean, as you know, you learned about like, or you heard your parents talk about how things were when they were growing up. It definitely seemed like there was a, a softening about racial attitudes and that people were, seemed like they were kind of trying to let it go. I realize now that, that that's not what was happening at all, that there was a very real undercurrent. I think that though where I'm at in my life in terms of the way that I think about this is that I, I'm not even so convinced that it has anything to do with what we consider racial. It has to do with power. And I realize that those power lines are split along skin color and or perceptions of skin color in this country. Yeah, I, I think that's that's the big thing. It's really actually hard for me now, as we look at like what's happening in 2019, for the most part, to be honest with you, I can't even really imagine how most white people would react other than the way that they are, to be honest. It's a, um, there are things that are happening in term of, terms of demographic changes, but even just the fundamental failings of capitalism in terms of creating greater disparities between the rich and the poor. They just don't think of themselves as the people that are the ones that are supposed to be um, poor. Well, as I say, yeah, they're, they're, they're feeling the pinch. And then you have a populist leader that points to those uh, criminals coming from the South and 
all these other groups, you know, that are, they're, they're convenient scapegoats. You know, he's just pulling on old uh, biases and uh, using them uh, to help out the really ultra rich who still benefit from the system. Whereas the vast majority are, they see their position uh, slipping and slipping and, you know, more debt, less, less capital for them, you know, because of the shift, the way the policies have been going for the last four or five decades, wiping out unions, wiping out middle class, you know, shifting that wealth, you know, into the upper tiers, you know, the upper tiers of capitalism. And then, you know, who do they blame? They, for some reason, they don't blame the, uh, the bosses and the, you know, the ultra wealthy who own all the, most of the capital. They, they blame the people that look different from them. Reiner, that is such a great point. And thank you. You hit on a lot of really critical things. Two things that I think are super important are number one, the owners of the businesses. As a woman in business, it drives me insane that no one is talking about the economic impact that immigrants bring to this country. I was reading an article that showed that immigrants are contributing over $400 billion to our tax base. Everyone talks about what they take. Let's talk about what they add. If you go into any restaurant or any construction site in Texas, you will find that 95 plus percent of all the workers are immigrants from some Spanish-speaking country. They're building up this country, and I'm sure you're all aware that businesses are driving much of the employment in this country. So why is no one talking about the owners of the businesses who are hiring these people? So that's important. And also you brought up the important point of bias. Every single person has unconscious bias. We all have it. If you have a pulse, we have bias. It's okay to have bias, but what we need to be cognizant of is that how that bias affects our thinking. And unfortunately, in this country, our educational system is horrendous. And I say that as a child of two educators, they didn't develop the curriculum. But I do think that our educational system is so terrible. And the history that we're taught in public schools is so, it's egregiously incorrect. We, we are not taught about how immigrants and Mexicans and Latinos have added to this country. And it's that lack of education that contributes to the ignorance and to the willful ignorance of our people. And I can't fault people 100% for not being taught something that's not taught in schools. People have to really go and search out these facts to understand what um, Mexicans and Latinos and immigrants from all over the world and how they've contributed to the economic and um, overall wealth of this country, not to mention even our infrastructure. Like It wasn't until I took Dr. William Penn's class at Michigan State that I learned that our whole democracy in the United States was based on the Iroquois Nation their infrastructure. And so those are really critical things that are left out of our educational system and that contribute to the white nationalism and to the woeful ignorance that I think is so prevalent in this country. Yeah, I think that Magda brings up a good point about the role of immigrants in this and especially, Todd, when you were asking your your second question there about, you know, are things improving over our, our lifetimes, the people who are on this call right now who are sort of in a certain generational space, right? And I think that one of the things we need to think about there is for which segment of the Chicano or the Mexicano population in the United States has life been improving. And so I think 
for people like myself, I'll speak more for myself here. I know though you all might want to weigh in on this. Somebody who is, you know, has many long roots in the United States, somebody who's benefited from my parents taking advantage of some of these sort of affirmative action programs and different programs that existed during the 60s and 70s. I think things, my lifestyle, my standard of living is much higher than my dad or his parents, definitely. Certainly, I think, you know, like history has its ups and downs. It's not an ever-progressing narrative by any stretch of the imagination. During my lifetime, I think, if we're going to talk about violence and state-sanctioned violence, and I definitely see the attacks in El Paso as state-sanctioned, we could call them even state-promoted violence. Yeah. um, Because the voice of the state is the one that, you know, is bringing helping bringing those to the fore for somebody like me for a pocha like me this is the most dangerous part of my life but for immigrants if we want to take that same time period from 1965 to the present things have especially immigrants from mexico things have been getting worse and worse the border has become far more militarized since the 1990s the ability to come to the united states since 1965 and immigration change law change that existed in that year you know has become more and more difficult even as the united states has relied on that labor that magda points out yeah and i mean one of the things that chicanos always need to keep in mind is it's only it's always only a matter of time before things that are punitive towards mexican immigrants come around to us for some of us it's immediate because we have those personal relationships. For some of us, it's not quite as immediate, but it is going to come around to you. That's what I was, I was thinking while Magda was talking, because she was absolutely making really good points. I'd like to kind of just throw this out to you all, is that there's certainly, there's no question about the ongoing vicious attack that's happening toward the Mexicano Central American immigrant community. But as Chicanos, we're not immigrants. I mean, all of us were were born here. Many of us, our parents were born here. Our grandparents were born here. You know, we're still kind of caught in this. You know, I guess my question to you all is, how does this conversation change a little bit around us? Clearly, you know, these guys that are going around doing these shootings, they're not asking to see anybody's papers, man. I mean, they're just blasting away. What does that mean for us as uh, Chicanos? How do we how do we begin to address that? What's important for us to do politically or culturally, socially? I, I cannot wait to answer this question. I think we need to do a lot of things in order to address this situation. Number one, we need to mobilize. And that means all of us and all of all of our people. We need to mobilize. We are the number, we are the largest underserved minority population in the US. We outpace the African-American population. Think about that for two seconds. But yet we have a lot less political clout. So we need to get, we need to get our shit together. We need to agree on a few themes and we need to start mobilizing on some key issues, on immigration, on detention centers, on these ridiculous laws that are being passed. So we need to mobilize and we need to do it quickly and we need to teach others how to do it. And we have to appeal to you know, the huge percentage of our Generation Z, our young, young, young people who are all online, they're all digitally focused and minded. We need to learn how to teach them 
how to mobilize. So we need to, A, get our stuff together first, and we need to teach them how to do it. But I also think that we need to realize that a lot of this institutionalized racism has been handed down over generations. My mom and I talk about this all the time. Our theory is that this racism started with, this goes back to long before the pilgrims. England and Spain were vying for superpower status in the 1500s. And that hatred amongst those two nations has existed for centuries. And so when the pilgrims came, we all know that St. Augustine was the first European settlement. And we all know with those of us who have strong indigenous roots, First Nation, our people have been here for over 10,000 plus years. But the first European settlement was in St. Augustine, was not Plymouth Rock. But there was that long-standing hatred. And that hatred has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. Again, most people are not educated in this, so I can't fault people 100% for our educational system, which doesn't teach people. You know, not every Spanish-speaking person is a delinquent and that there's more to us than just being a drug dealer, a thief, or a prostitute, right, or a gangbanger. There's so much more to this. And we need to start teaching our, telling our own stories. The mass media only tells stories about drug dealers and about crime and about prostitutes. We need to tell our own stories in a compelling way using film, using the arts, using the performing arts, and teach others so that we can get positive stories about ourselves because the mass media is not going to do it. I think, I think we've seen that. That's just my two cents. It's great two cents. <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole peso. <laughs> well, they're not all, they're not all, the portrayals aren't always as criminals. You know, sometimes, you know, you're maids in Manhattan and things like that. But well, that's true. You know. <laughs> that's true. Some, that is true. Sometimes we are maids in Manhattan. Yeah. That's right. So what do we do? You know, we think about how we challenge these media representations. I mean, that's serious. But, like, there are people out there walking around with guns who want to shoot Mexicans. Well, there's um, that. Well, you know, you were talking about historically, you know, to I'm sure to piss off some gun-loving folks who I wonder if they fillet them, you know, in the, you know, privacy of their own homes, you know. But to get back to it, so, you know, things looked okay in the uh, late 20th century, right? The 90s and so on. But that also coincided with a, uh, you know, the ban on assault rifles, whatever you want to call them, you know, large capacity magazines, semi-automatic, right? fake uh, play soldier guns, you know. And then all of a sudden that ban gets lifted. And then, you know, you got folks running around with 30, 30 round magazines. In some cases, you know, you can buy a 60 rounder from Brownells. And then you can, you know, just slap in 60 rounds and just let it go. You know, and then they develop things, you know, bump stocks that you don't even got to pull the trigger. The recoil pulls the trigger for you, you know, and for all intents and purposes, you know, you've turned a semi-automatic weapon. Technically, what is a semi-automatic weapon? You've turned it into an automatic weapon that's simply spraying out rounds, spraying out bullets. You're not aiming something like that. You're just kind of fire hosing in the general direction of people, you know, with the intent of hurting as many as possible. And you put it in the hands of one of these uh, folks who have been uh, kind of egged on or, or you have the, uh, or what the term, I think it was Magda used, uh, where the state sanctioned or state promoted, you know, violence or targets, you know, they kind of get pushed in that direction. And next thing you know, you know, Walmart's getting shot up. But in this case, instead of having, you know, a, 
a handgun with nine round capacity and you've got a, a weapon that has 30 rounds and can, the clip can be changed in under a second. And uh, those rounds aren't really designed to kill. They're designed to maim and to, uh, you know, on the battlefield, they're designed to, to disable and, and severely wound, you know, an opponent so that two or three of his comrades are there trying to help him, you know? So in, instead of stopping one person, you've stopped four, but then you get them in the hands of a civilian and then they're just letting loose in a Walmart and we see what happens, you know? you know, dozens dead and three times as many wounded, you know, all because somebody, you know, got worked up by, uh, by the rhetoric of our, uh, our president and writes a manifesto and then goes and looks for brown people. So, I mean, we've all been organizers uh, in one capacity or another for uh, many years now. Is this the moment where we form gun clubs? I mean, do we need to take gun safety courses? Uh, should we be stocking up on rounds? I mean, is that re- is that the is that the answer to this, or is it is it not even a question really that can have two answers? I mean, is it a yes or no question, or is it just a you don't have any choice question? No, I, well, we need to think about what is the what it is we're hoping to achieve, right? I mean, you have, I mean, we're we're sitting in a pot that's that's like slowly boiling around us, and we can see everyone getting everyone being affected. We're in a position of privilege and that we're, we're, we have a little more uh, space, you know, temperature's a little cooler where we're uh, all particularly situated, but you can see where it's going. Um, the trajectory is pretty much inevitable. Is, gonna, is having a gun club, you know, it might be useful in a particular situation, but it's, is it going to stop the massive concentration of our people in, you know, in detention camps or will it, or would it accelerate it? You know, those are those are questions. What do you think you would do? Well, I think it depends on how, you know, what what first of all, we don't have a coherent identity or a coherent response. We don't have a coherent movement as uh, Chicanos, as Mexicanos, as immigrants, as Latinos. These are all identities that are serving their purpose of separating and limiting, limiting the response we can have. While, like, as you noted, the people who are doing the shooting, they don't have time for those niceties or they don't really care. They don't, for them, the identity is clear, right? It's, 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 um, but don't you think that that means on some level? And I'm, I'm really, I think what you're saying is super interesting. Don't you think that on some level that means that we actually do have a coherent identity? It's just that one that we want to accept? Well, it depends on we. What yeah. do you mean? Well, I mean, in this case, I'll say Mexicans in the United States. I, I think that's as broad as I can get with it. Absolutely. No, there's not a coherent identity. Like if you go to the, uh, just the, the Guatemalan embassy or the consulate down the road here, they don't serve Guatemalans who don't speak Spanish. Mm. It's, it's, it's not, we do not have a coherent identity. And that's, right. that's why we're, you know, we're, we're going, we're easily divided because we do not have a coherent identity. No, right. I, understand, I understand that we don't. I'm saying the fact that there are people who are walking around and they're very clearly targeting Chicanos, Mexicanos, right? In their mind, there's a very simple identity. So, I mean, doesn't that indicate, though, that that identity is is possible or that there's something going on there? Well, I mean, Todd, I think that 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 speaks to the question of racialization, right? Because... I mean, as a historian, right, I always think about, well, what's going to happen with this in the future, d- depending on 
a lot of different factors. And one of the things that has been occurring is that we are being pushed together with each other by the actions of white supremacists. Right. You know, there is a study put out by the Pew Hispanic Center not too long ago of people who are third, fourth generation, you know, taking different genera- immigrant generations and saying, you know, do these people identify as Latino anymore or not? Or do they identify as Mexicano anymore or not? And of course, over the generations, that connection fade, right? That's well established. One of the factors that So they asked him, well, why does that fade over time, right? Like, why do you feel, even though you have these Mexican or Puerto Rican or other ancestors, why don't you identify as that anymore? And people gave a variety of different answers, right? Like language, they didn't speak Spanish, they didn't know those people, et cetera. But there was one thing that really made people say, you know, no, I still identify with this group. There's a number of things, but one of them was if they had felt they had experienced discrimination. Mm. If they felt they had experienced discrimination, they were more likely to say, even though I'm a mixed person, even though I don't speak Spanish, even though you know, I don't really have that direct connection with Mexico, I see myself as Mexican, as Chicano, etc. So I think... There is, are some ways in which this increase in violence has effects that are not really intended. And one of them is a kind of racialization of Mexican and Latin American origin people in the United States, you know, a bringing together. What we do with that is kind of an open question. There's not really one answer of what we should be doing now. And it probably will take a lot of different strategies to do something to make a difference. The thing that most concerned me in the few weeks after the the massacre were all the people on the internet, on Twitter, and in articles that I saw saying things that were internalizing the hatred that was displayed there toward themselves, right? Because I could see just the operation of so many things that were very negative for Mexican people in the U.S. in the past, right? In the past parts of the 20th century, like people saying, you know, in articles or to friends on the internet, well, you know, I, I'm glad that my kids are really light-skinned because maybe somebody's not going to shoot them. Yeah. I'm glad that I don't have an accent because maybe somebody's not going to shoot me. Yeah. And I think that's something that, I don't think we can, we cannot prevent the type of, I personally cannot prevent a person who has the kind of weapons that Reiner was talking about from killing me. There's no way. I'm not, I am not capable of doing anything about that. But I think that we're all capable of making sure that we are very intentional and vociferous in the stories that we tell each other about what this violence against us means. Those are seeds that we can cultivate and grow in the future. I think Dr. Nora brings up a really great point in terms of what we have control over and what we don't, and the fact that this is a multifaceted problem. In my mind, there are three major issues that I think we need to address. One is, you know, Dr. Brene Brown says that all humans are craving caring and connection, 
sadly, I think one of the things that a lot of these mass shooters have in common is that they are all <clears throat> mentally ill white males, young white males. And I think these people, these young white males who are committing these uh, mass shootings are looking for something to belong to. And unfortunately, you know, some of the, what these people are choosing to belong to is this white nationalist movement that thinks that or or whose credo believes that we don't have a right to be here. At the root of that incorrect thought that that Mexicanos or Chicanos or Latinos don't have a right to be here is a isn't is ignorance. People are not educated. That's something we can control. We could, in theory, start telling these stories and create modules that we put online where we teach people, we know our history, we could share those stories online and in other ways using multi, um, you know, multi-faceted approach to sharing our history to let people know not everyone immigrated yesterday. And for the people who do, that's fine. But there's also the vast majority in this country have been here for generations and we need to tell that story that we didn't just get here yesterday. People don't know that we've been here for centuries. And, you know, we are a mixture of Europeans and First Nation and Mexicans and, and, and many other things in between. But most, I think because most people don't understand that history, they're, they're people who think, oh, I'm going to go shoot everyone who doesn't belong here because they're taking away from me, not realizing how much we're actually contributing to our society politically, culturally, economically, and in a million different ways. Yeah. Reiner, you wanted to say something. Yeah. I think uh, one thing we have to be real cautious on is uh, buying into the narrative that, you know, well, the post hoc narrative that any, any time there's a shooter, that that person is mentally ill. Yeah. Um, because a lot of these shooters, you know, under the DMV uh, classifications, they probably wouldn't be considered mentally ill. They might have this or that going on, but that's always also scapegoating. Every time somebody goes and shoots up a school or shoots up a store or does this or that, oh, they're crazy. But that's post hoc. You know, we, we have to be cautious because that's just a post hoc kind of stereotyping that could go on. So obviously what they've done is way out, out of the bounds of normal behavior, you know, at that time. But are they mentally ill or were they mentally ill? In many cases, no. So we just have we just have to be cautious with that that categorizing that's a good point reiner i mean not every you're right not every shooter would be classified officially as mentally ill in my mind people who commit mass shootings are mentally ill but that that is not a clinical assessment but you're right i mean you're right about that but one thing is for sure a lot of these people you know when we talk about gun control laws a lot of these people aren't getting their guns at stores a lot of people buy them off the black market. Now, of course, we still need, we need to do something. I don't know what the right answer is in terms of what controls we need to put in place, but here's what we know for sure. There is, Houston, we have a problem. We have an epidemic in this country. I mean, I talked to my European friends and they're like, what is going on in your country? Why is everyone shooting everybody? Like, well, hey, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, so, so we know that much is like, we have a serious, we have a serious problem where for some reason people think the way to act out is to kill other people. And that's a fundamental 
problem. There, there is a thought, there's something going wrong in people's minds where people think, oh, something's going wrong in my life, let me go shoot a bunch of people. Or I'm enraged, let me go shoot a bunch of people. I, I just don't understand. I think we need to game theory some scenarios as to what would happen if we were see, to see, you know, criminalization of guns and, and the repeal of the Second Amendment. Uh, you know, what would actually happen as far as, you know, we know gun, where guns are stockpiled, you know, who tends to have the majority of them, but who would actually see, you know, their guns taken away. It's probably very dependent on geography, who they're at, where they're at. You know, it's much more likely going to be people in the city who'd have their um, guns taken away, I would think, and who would more likely tend to be black and brown. But, but that being said, it's clearly, you know, there's no denying the facts of what liberalized gun laws have done to this country. So I want to go back to this question of identity. Yeah. Because we've all been using all these different terms, you know, to refer to both ourselves and our community, our communities. And I think it's undeniable that you're seeing this, you know, this country is is multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-whatever, you know, there's this tremendous misdemeanor that's going on in the U.S., which is something that we need to, that needs to be part of our uh, organizing and political understanding. But I think as far as the identity that we're trying to create, we need to be looking at a brown and indigenous identity which is in many cases, you know, it's essentialized the same way as blackness is, but I think that would be really useful as far as organizing our communities into a coherent whole, you know, along the lines of what, you know, we've been discussing. Everything we're talking about is, is incremental. At the end of the day, though, you know, history does not stop. So if the right is able to advance, if white supremacists are able to gain further control, we know that we're going to see our rights further curtailed. And the only possible outcome is going to have to be a civil war. And are we prepared for that? You know, I think these are things that I don't have an answer. You can't tell me, well, what should we do? I, I can ask me, what should we do? I don't know what we should do. Yeah. But I think we need to start plotting out what is it we would do because that's inevitable, right? Assuming, you know, if we, if we just stay under the uh, conception of liberal democracy, if we, if we are able to, uh, you know, as part of this broader coalition, you know, regain the White House, or at least throw the white supremacists out of the White House and out of the majority in the Senate, potentially will happen. Um, they're not going to, that's not going to end, that's not going to end there because they're going to re- redouble their efforts. I mean, I think they've tasted something now that they did not think was possible, right? Like white supremacy was never on the front burner it is now, and they're not going to just easily just, uh, you know, step back into the shadows once we, um, sorry, that's me. Those beeps are, are oh, those beeps are people t- uh, texting me, and I don't know how to turn them off. My That's apologies. Right. But so, you know, they're 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 going to redouble their efforts, and so we need to. So we know this process is going to continue, even if you know we're able to somehow part of a movement that changes, or you know, at least some incremental reforms. We can look at the history of the country and know that those reforms are not going to be either very substantial or looking at the root of the problem until we have developed this much stronger mass movement. Same way with capitalism, right? Until, you know, Sanders is out there preaching his thing. But as he says, unless there's people out there, millions of people on the streets demanding socialism, it's not really going to happen. Likewise, unless we have a very strong movement that's out there organizing and moving in a very intelligent, coherent manner, we're not going to achieve the changes that we really need. And so that's I think 
one of the, I, I, and this is thought just occurred to me, is really developing this very essentialized identity as a uh, brown indigenous people in this country, regardless of what, where exactly we've come from or what exactly our history has been. I think you're absolutely right, Teo. The only, the only thing that I would say is I would probably urge you to rethink the use of the word essentialize in terms of it creating that sort of an identity. Because actually, if we're looking at a Chicano or Brown or indigenous identity, um, that's actually not an essentialized identity at all. It's, it's very broad. And I mean, really, even thinking about it in terms of, of resistance, right? I mean, when we think about what basically I feel like all of you have been saying in one way or another is this, uh, this need to mobilize in, in our communities. And, and really, I think the mistake that, that we make lots of times is that we try to get way too specific about who it is that we're, we're talking about. And if we think about, you know, a, a very basic definition of nation, right? Nation is the largest grouping of people that can command loyalty. And that's all it is. I mean, it doesn't mean they do this or they do that or, you know, I think this or you think that. It's clear there are Chicanos that are super conservative and there are Chicanos that are, you know, super to the left. I was going to say liberal, but I mean, we're talking to the left, right? They both consider themselves Chicanos. They have an allegiance to, to a certain identity. I, I was really into what you were saying, man. I was going to come back to it myself if you hadn't, if you hadn't done that. But this, I think, notion of, of a coherent identity and just how broadly we can imagine that, I think that that's one of the things that we haven't done is we haven't thought about how we broadly imagine identity because we're so busy fracturing our identities and just like continuously making them smaller all the time. So yeah, that's, yeah, right on, dude. That's what I, I'm, I'm, I'm into that. That's what I, when I use that term was really that we really can't be looking at identity with any nuance. I don't think we have to be looking at very uh, broad strokes. And that's why I was saying like just Brown, like whatever, if we're going organizing with all Central, Amer Central Americans, we shouldn't be talking about Mexicano and Chicano because to them, that's like, whatever, yeah. that's a completely foreign group, right? Yep. So we need to be looking at what is the, what is the common denominator? Yeah. I agree. I agree with both of you wholeheartedly. And one of the things that I would love to see us do is create a new term. You know, I am, I am a mixture of Spaniard and First Nation, my indigenous roots, as well as Mexican. I'm all those things. And I'm proud of each and every one of those components. And I don't want to forego any one of those components. And so if we could create a broader term and get people to buy into it, it's no different than an ad campaign. You know, it's no different than how political races are won. It's true. You know, when you look at certain um, political races in South America, they've hired ad campaign people to go, you know, to go sell an idea. This is the same thing. And I also think that we need our own organization, something to the something similar or or like Black Lives Matter. We need our own, but we need our own. We need our own ideology, perhaps a different infrastructure model, um, different ways in how we disseminate information. But I think what they do really well is they have a political voice. You know, um, Adam Grant writes about this in the Originals book. 
one of the brilliant things that they did is they didn't have just one leader. There's not one throat to choke. So that means this, you know, the FBI and the CIA aren't looking for one person. They're separated all over the place. They have multiple leaders everywhere. So it's like, what, you're going to go kill everyone? No. You, you, so we've got to create this ideology, get people to buy into it, and then really have our own voices, have our own spokespeople like all of you to go evangelize these words and the, you know, these beliefs so that we can drive our own future. Because here's the thing, you know, look at how powerful Black Lives Matter is and kudos to them. I say kudos for organizing and getting stuff done. You know, when I look at the case of Meek Mill, and if you all haven't seen this documentary, you need to see it. It is so good. It talks, he's a rapper from Philadelphia. And this kid, he was a kid when he got involved in the criminal justice system and he got ingrained in it for 13 years because he was brown. And I looked at that and I cried. I looked at my own situation and all those situations of people that I know in my family and elsewhere. It's the situation of black and brown. When you're black or brown and you have, you don't have access to means, you're socioeconomically deprived you get sucked in by the system. I'd like to see us drive our own reality going forward. Yeah. Well, mine was a little more, well, it was along the lines of what, what you all have been saying. I mean, yeah, we can't get too specific because, you know, when they see a brown person, the brown person is going to get their ass shot off, you know. So, you know, they don't care. The blood's all red. You know, the skin's all brown. You know, to use a broad stroke to them, we probably should organize uh, accordingly. Yeah, I mean, I agree in the sense that um, I don't think that we should get too caught up on internal consistency sometimes. Our enemies certainly are not caught up on being internally consistent in either their thought, things they say, actions, etc. There is still sometimes a sense amongst many people I see who are organizers, um, and especially because now, as a person who has a PhD, you know, there's a sense that if we assemble like a really good case and it's really compelling and very well argued, and it's got all these citations, etc., that's going to do something for most of the people who are either white supremacists or don't care that their friends, family members, brothers, sisters, sisters, etc., are white supremacists. There might always be, like, there's a sliver of people, we don't know who, that will be convinced by that kind of thing. And that sliver can be really critical. But most of that stuff is really only for us. The case is only really for us to keep us on what some some people in the past have called maybe the red road, right? To keep us on the right path, right? To keep us in Laonda, Chicana, or whatever we're going to call it. It's not really to convince people. And so we get caught up on making it enough to convince other people as if it's enough to convince us, it's probably enough, right? In terms of the coherency of the identity or the way that it would be messaged or, you know, Magda could come in with some advertising terms that mean more, the type of thing that I'm thinking, right? That's probably good. I think sometimes if we try to get too detailed and too much evidence and all this edifice of logic and argumentation, then it can cut us off from doing creative things that could help advance, right? That cuts off our, like the role of inspiration 
that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think uh, to uh, kind of use one of those logic terms, I think we get caught up in, uh, in false dichotomies where, where we focus too much on, well, or maybe not too much, but we focus, or we say that we have to focus on, let's say, quote, Chicano ideas or this or that, you know, this red road. And when we do that, we create a false dichotomy where we're like, oh, if we do that, we can't work in this broader sense, you know, or, or it swings the other way. Folks uh, work in the broader sense with community and then they kind of lose their individual identity. It's not a, an either or kind of situation. We just have to realize that again, you know, they just see brown people. And uh, although we know who we are and there's subgroups that we can at times have that closer bond with, we still have to, uh, to organize on a, on a scale that, that matches what these folks who want to harm us see. Just to throw in my two cents on this particular point, we spend a lot of time thinking about how we can explain ourselves as Chicanos, Mexicanos, Indigenous people to, you know, greater society. And I think that getting back to what Teo was saying earlier about a coherent identity is that I believe that if we really want to create a coherent identity, then we have to stop trying to explain ourselves and we have to start an internal dialogue that talks about what these things mean to us. Because there is no way to, we're never going to, well, like Fanon says, you will never make colonialism blush by showing it your, or the colonizer, your culture. They don't care. It's irrelevant to them that you have a culture. That's, that's not what this exercise is about. The more that we try to explain ourselves to them, actually, I believe deeper and mesh, we become in the settler colonial system because actually what we're doing is reifying it and um, ensuring it up. So, you know, I think that's why these kinds of conversations are good but we have to talk about that coherent identity and, and what that means in those really broad strokes. And I think we have some shared experiences that resonate broadly amongst people from South America to the U.S. and beyond. There are experiences of, you know, people experiencing racism, you know, people being detained, people having their families separated. And I think there are a lot of these issues that, that we could focus on and say, Look, we're going to focus on, there's a thousand issues we could focus on, but maybe we pick five to 10 and say, we're going to focus on these five to 10 issues, tension, immigration, family separation, gun violence, whatever they are, whatever the top five to 10 are, and then go create some strategies to go address them in a multitude of ways. But I think it's the onus is on us to drive that action because no one's going to do it for us. We can't rely on our lawmakers to do it. Or we go to the lawmakers and say, here's our plan. Will you help us? I mean, there's a million different ways that we could execute this, but we have to collectively decide what we're going to go work on and drive. One other piece that we really didn't uh, discuss is like thinking about how, you know, you said the sort of the progress that we'd seen up until the election of Obama and then the reaction to that, which I've heard some uh, scholars refer to as the end of the second reconstruction, was based in a denial of Obama based on birtherism, which is really just whatever, whatever the, 
the point of trying to create a fact, it was trying to create this idea that these people are not American and that they do not have, they don't get to hold or define what the nation means. And so that's something that we're going to have to embrace and adopt because, because it's uh, the truth too, right? These are our lands. We're the definition of America. And that's something that we're going to have to make very clear as well, I think, in our political positioning, even though for a lot of people it might be anathema to do so. I think that's going to be very fundamental to, to this movement. Yeah. And I think we've been largely dehumanized in this society, and we have been for generations. And I, I love that. Theophilo, because it's like we have to reinforce the notion that we're human beings and every single human being is worthy of dignity and a place in society. Just because we're brown doesn't mean that we do not deserve to partake in the American dream or, you know, to be successful and take care of our families and have friends. And, and I think largely what I see in white nationalist movement is this underlying sentiment that we have no right to be here because we just crossed the border or we just got here or, or whatever. There's a sense that we're subhuman. All right. Last thoughts. Uh, <laughs> anyways. Uh, Is it time to bring back Ram? Real yeah. angry Mexicans? Do we need to do that? Look, I do have a nice new uh, stock and hand grip for my 12 gauge shotgun, but I still can't see, which is why I'm really not convinced about the whole, gun club thing because there's a there's a fellow you know to get back to that there's a fellow i know who does he went to berkeley graduated out of there but then he went to israel and got training like krav maga and all that stuff right his whole goal seems to have been to get into the personal protection market right where he provides service where he accompanies people or he and his staff accompany people in hostile areas and he was saying you know after that shouldn't he was like you know it's Texas and look at all the people who probably did have guns and what happened, you know, so everybody packing Hell yeah. Oh. doesn't really mean there's going to be a coherent response to a, a mass shooter, mm -hmm. you know, so that's probably not the answer. I mean, because, because people just aren't trained. They freeze, you know, they panic. It's, it's a natural response to just freeze or jump or, you know, your flea mechanism kicks in first, not this whole, you know, people have to be broken down and trained you know, by our military to go into these situations where bullets are flying, you know, and the average Joe and Jane are not going to do that. I mean, and thinking about it historically, right? Like there are times, especially, and it's, there's a lot more written about African-Americans and black activists and their use of self-defense weapons and self-defense during the 20th century. And those are real things that really happened. But, a lot of those situations were not the type of situation that we saw in El Paso, right? Those were situations where people were in their home and some white supremacists were targeting them because of their organizing. You know, they were in a certain space that was easier to defend. And that does still happen today. There has been some cases of that, but that's not the case with this shooting down in El Paso. Even people who are very well-trained don't always, are not always successful. There is a lot of psychological vagaries in whether or not a person with a lot of training can really react in that moment. You know, what I always think about is even if we got some Chicano ninja who's there at that moment to protect everyone, I mean, what's the next thing that's going to happen, right? After the police get there, they're going to shoot him or yeah. her. Or her, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, or them. 
I mean, they'll have saved a lot of people, which would be great for those people. But I mean, I understand the urge to engage in the sort of like gun club thing as an idea of wanting to protect oneself and one's family, right? I mean, I think that is a righteous urge from this violence. But it also comes from the desire to be in control of the situation that is fundamentally out of our control. We have impact on this situation. You know, I'm leery of it because it seems like an easy solution to a lot for a lot of people. But in practice, I think, you know, does other, some of the other types of organizing that we're talking about actually make a bigger impact? I think that Dr. Salas has, has really given us the, um, the thing to think about in, in terms of that. And that is um, what is actually within our control, right? I mean, mm -hmm. because that's, that's really what this is about. I mean, that's what this conversation is about. I mean, what is within our control? And it is within our control to uh, work in communities, to build an organization, to organize, to continue to teach, to develop a coherent, broad-based identity that will eventually lead to greater liberation for indigenous people in the Americas, hopefully. Yeah, that's deep, Nora. What is in our control? So, all right. Expanding the floor of the cage. What's that? I said expanding the floor of the cage. Holiday mm. <laughs> oro. All right. I want to thank everyone for being with us today. All of us want to urge all of you to get involved and help build organizations within our indigenous communities. The purpose of this podcast is to bring Chicanx voices to the forefront. Chicanx indigenous people are the experts of their own experience. And our goal here is to challenge the proxy narratives that keep our community under the European thumb of settler colonialism. So until next time, stay alert, Stay hydrated and know where the exits are.